Welcome to the She Built This podcast, where we are sharing the stories of professionals and entrepreneurs creating the new norm by following their dreams and making them a reality. I'm Emily Aborn, and along with my co-host, Crystal Farley, we are here to give you the roadmap to success and the tools you need to build whatever this means for you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I feel like there should be like a red carpet or fanfare every time I say that, or confetti at least. There absolutely should be. Yeah, it would make it a lot more. Mike, can't you make that happen? Yeah, next time we want confetti and a red carpet. Yes. Please. How are you today, Crystal? You know what? I am doing swell. Good. I love to hear these things. I also am doing swell. That's that's a weird word, but I (laughs) I had to change it. I'll I'll go with it. (laughs) Um, Crystal, have you ever been lost? How are we speaking? Are we speaking physically or emotionally? I because guess, I have been lost in a variety of ways in my life. I yeah. guess to, I'll, you take it any which way you want. I'm, I don't actually have a really great sense of a direction. So while I'm driving, I really, I need directions. Otherwise I will get lost. Now, did that creep up on you slowly, like with the development of GPS or have you always had a bad sense of direction? I've always had a bad sense of direction. I, do you remember MapQuest? Vaguely. I printed, oh, that's right. I'm older than you. I would print out directions. Oh, no, I did that too. Like yeah. to get and myself to back go, to college. Yeah. <laughs> like that was our GPS. Do you remember? Yes. What did we do yes. before and the we're iPhone? Like, you're like reading and driving and looking up and yeah. And I was probably less likely to get into an accident then because, yeah. you know, now technology is just distracting everybody. But yes. anyhow, yes, and emotionally I've been lost too. Well, we'll talk about that another that's a whole time. Other episode, that's that's though, not it? for this podcast. Oh, okay. Um, last summer, I got lost in the woods twice. First in the woods behind my house. Like I literally could not find my way back home because it's it's just like miles and miles and miles of conservation land and it's very roundabout and every single tree looks the same. So I could not figure out how to get home. And my dog was all turned around. There were two dogs actually, cause I was with my friend. We were all turned around and she kept being like, just follow the dogs. They were not taking us to the right place. So finally... We, I like couldn't look up on my phone where we were. I couldn't call anybody. It started to kind of get a little scary. And I was literally in my own backyard. So for our listeners, we just talked a few episodes ago about how it was like, it's like hunting season sometimes and you have to wear like bright colors and you were a lot, that is terrifying. It was terrifying. But then I eventually just followed my heart and popped out at a neighbor's house. And he fed me dinner and I made it home It's just like some sad children's story. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, all right. The reason I asked the question is because today's guest is Kelly Fitzsimmons. Kelly is a serial tech entrepreneur, artist, and mother of two. And recently she published her best-selling book called Lost in Startuplandia, which is wayfaring for the weary entrepreneur. She's the co-founder of Custom Reality Services, a virtual reality production company whose first Two projects, Across the Line and Ash 68, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Kelly is the recipient of the Silvertip PwC Entrepreneurship Award and Speech Technologies Luminary Award. Her work has been published by Network Computing, Information Week, and Inc. An active angel investor, Kelly is on the technology committee for Bell USA, a venture fund that invests in women-led startups. Originally trained as a classical archaeologist, Kelly holds a master's degree from Harvard University. Welcome, Kelly. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. I actually had to look up what a classical archaeologist was. (laughs) 
And we're having, I don't know if you've heard of the book Know Thyself by Ingrid Rossellini. Um, but Oh, no. Yeah, you should look it up. We're having her on. We're having her on our podcast, but I think it's right up your alley based on what I read about classic archaeology. I reference I reference the Oracle of Delphi a lot. And that know thyself comes from that forecourt in the uh, in the in the in the temple complex. Um, So, yes, right up my alley. Love it. So before we jump in, there's a couple of things I just want to like touch on. here. It's quite a resume. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, So thank you. So I just want to put out there that first of all, if you were to Google Kelly, we're calling you Kelly. We took a risk because that's how you sign your emails, right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Kelly's but if you were to want to Google her, you want to say Keller, right? So I, we took a risk there. So I want to throw that out there. That's Keller Fitzsimmons. Um, and my daughter's name is Belle. So mm-hmm. I was really excited about your uh, venture fund that invests in women-led startups because in addition to the wonderful name that you chose, uh, startups are right up our alley too. So we are actually, um, this year we Emily's always been involved in um, women's entrepreneurship events, and I've gotten tasked with some entrepreneurship events here in New Hampshire, too. So there's a lot of synergies we have. So thank you again for uh, coming on today. Oh, absolutely. Um, So I would love to start, I guess, by talking about what the word lost means to you. Yeah, well, I think you guys touched on it so beautifully. Um, You know, for for me, when I talk about lost, I I am talking about an emotional and metaphorical sense um, where it's a dislocation. Um, something in our life is not working. Um, the unworkabilities of our life are now becoming really present, and we're aware to, we're aware of them. Oftentimes, we might be lost for years, and you know, friends and family keep telling us you're lost, and we're like, I'm not lost. I'm good. I'm you know, I'm dancing to my own beat, and so it's a self-declaration. We have to declare ourselves lost to be lost. And um, for me personally, I made that declaration uh, several years ago when I had a series of events that took place that created a dislocation. Uh, I, in 2015, on the winter solstice, my mother passed away. Um, this was not unexpected, but Six months later, my sister did pass away unexpectedly. And then two months later, uh, I had a health crisis that um, basically resulted in a brain injury where I lost reading comprehension, which meant that I wasn't able to work. Um, I had to resign from all my boards. um, And I spent a year in and out of bed, um, you know, deeply fatigued, um, struggling with depression, and also... Uh, my identity. I'd always known myself as an entrepreneur first. And the idea of who am I if I can't work started to creep into my consciousness. And that was when I declared myself lost. So what kind of steps, thank you for sharing. Um, That is not easy to share at all. Um, What kind of steps did you take at that point? Or how did you decide that this isn't like being in bed all the time wasn't for you? And and what did you do next? Well, for those who know me, just sitting still is hard for me. I'm always on the go. Um, I'm very active. And, and so this was a very, this was a major change in my life. Um, And I, I, at first, I didn't, 
take any steps. I want to be really clear. I had to wallow in it for a while. Um, you know, I think that we're very quick to judge people when they're, you know, feeling lost and be like, get your shit together. Go, go. And I apologize for swearing, but I, you're I allowed swear to swear. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the permission. Um, but you know, we want, we want them to get their life on. And I think, you know, for me, at least there was a story that if I laid there long enough, I was going to be in full blown depression. And I was scared of that. That was a scary idea to me. And so I wanted out of the space as fast as possible. And I think that culturally that's reinforced um, where we don't like to see people in a state of lostness. Uh, it's very uncomfortable to be around people in that state. They might be looping on stories. They might be wallowing and feeling sorry for themselves. They might be in a very victim-y place. And what I would offer is that that's a natural process. Um, it's a grieving process, really, because you've lost something important to you. And grief is messy. Um, we keep trying to, like, there's five steps and what stage are you in? And thankfully, you know, we're now at a place in terms of the research doesn't support that. Um, grieving is very individual. And and how we get through it is really based on our strengths and who we are as people and our own backstories and experiences. And so for me, I needed some time to just wallow and feel sorry for myself. I needed a lot of poor babies. <laughs> um, and then it, it, it dawned on me, I, I had to do something. And that doing something resulted in, in two things. One, um, I started to speak into my voice memos on my phone. I started to record thoughts. I started to record sounds. I've always been interested in music and I always knew it wasn't quite the right medium for me, but I was so successful at it that it kept me in the game far longer than I think I ever anticipated. Um, and so when I started making these noises and sounds and you know half songs into my voice memos app, I started to really realize that I was very sick, I could die, and there was two things that were incomplete in my life. One, I knew I had a book in me. And two, I knew I had music in me. And I didn't want to die with either of those in me. And so I had to step into my courage. And for me, the way I went about it and what I write about in my book was I, I created little, little acts of courage, um, which basically is... If I saw a friend do something and I would say, oh, that's badass. And then I did it by the transitive law of badassery, I too was a badass. So it was a way of catching myself in my bravery and impressing myself to help build my self-belief. That's so that a, was the first start. That's a great technique. Um, let's, <laughs> I, I mean it. I need to start doing that too. Um, let's talk a little bit about the book, Lost in Star Startuplandia. And it's a great name. Um, who do you think it is for? I wrote the book for me at the age of 29. So, um, so in 2001, that was the first time I experienced being lost in a real sense of the emotional impact of lost. I, uh, I had started two companies at the same time. It was the GoGo 90s. Everybody was like, well, I have one company. When there was articles like that written about that in Fast Company. And I was just so naive. I just stepped all into, the, into it. And I was 29 
when the dot-com crash happened. And I was in a situation where I had sent, signed a lot of personal guarantees. And to be honest, I didn't really understand what a personal guarantee was. Uh, I ignored all the good advice around me. I knew I couldn't fail. I had proven again and again in my short life that if I just worked hard enough and gave it all of my effort and put my nose to the grindstone, I would succeed. So that story was based on my history. And I had to overcome some big stuff up until 29. I have dyslexia and uh, I didn't start reading until 20. So that story, I believed, was true, that if I just worked hard enough, I could do this. Well, there are some things that are outside our control. And at 29, I discovered that a, a market collapse was outside my control. And um, my loans were called. And I had, um, at that point, $5 million in personally guaranteed debt. And it was crushing. Um, it was like I drove into a wall of, you know, at 100 miles an hour and just shattered my persona. What I believed to be true about myself um, shattered. And I, I found that I was that really looking at what I was scared that the world would see. I felt so exposed. I, to me, and what that translated to was my hidden conclusion of that I felt like I was a stupid, crazy failure. And, um, and I stayed in that space, that headspace secretly for three years on the outside, my life looked great. Um, but inside I was breaking and there was a major disconnect between the world, what the world saw and how I was feeling on the inside. And that disconnect, I would call a moral injury. I felt like I was lying to the world and, um, and nobody knew that I was carrying this debt except for two people. And, um, and so I was acting, you know, on paper, I looked very successful. I mean, our company was doing well and that company would eventually exit. Um, and I would be able to pay off the debt. But for those three years, I was in that lost space. So I wrote the book for me at 29 because I knew that I wasn't alone. And I knew that that experience is shared by millions. And it's just not talked about in the current literature for entrepreneurship. It's way too rah-rah, here's my five steps to success. And if you just follow in my footsteps, you too will be successful. And that's just not true. So I recently did um, some work with Tufts Biolabs here in Boston, and they are uh, they're a co-working space for tech startups, um, for biotech startups. And so... I actually teach, I facilitate stress relief workshops. So I get people talking about things that they normally wouldn't feel safe talking about at work, right? Uh, so they had me in, they had me in because they obviously, I'm sorry, it's biotech, right? So it's super stressful. Like startups are stressful as it is, but then add in the level of stress for biotech, which is a completely different animal. And I got feedback that the people in there, they've, that, that the observers had never witnessed so many scientists in a room actually talk about things so openly as they did in that hour. And we were just literally talking about stress, like basic stressors at work, like time management, deadlines, funding, financing, getting VCs, you know, that sort of stuff. And, you know, I think that's something really powerful that you're providing is, is 
uh, education and the reality of that, because you're right, we're in a space where everybody's being encouraged to open up their own business and be an entrepreneur. And we talk a lot about it's it's really hard and then it gets really great, but we don't spend enough time talking about the hard. And I know when I had first found you, you had written an article, you had you had been interviewed for an article about um, mental health being a workout, a physical workout. And that was something that really drew me to you. It sounds like the book is really right up the same the same alley. Absolutely. You know, it really comes to a rootedness of self-care. How well are we taking care of ourselves? And um, because everything hinges on that, our ability to make good decisions, our ability to be present in conversations is really depleted when we do not have a good night's sleep, when we do not eat well, when we fail to go to the doctor for a regular checkup because something's hurting, but we're now convinced it's cancer and we don't want to know. Or, um, and, and, then, and then into the emotional wellness piece of naming how we're feeling and having it be safe, you know, to share with other people that today's a bad day, you know, I've got stuff going on at home or, um, you know, I'm not feeling well today, I need to take a self-care day. And typically in startup culture, there is this um, underlying assumption and unchecked assumption that you know, working a hundred hour work weeks is a badge of honor. And that somehow, you know, we're gonna cram a 25 year career into five years. And um, that's what we have to do. And what we don't realize is that we're really shortchanging our cognition. We, we can't perform at that kind of level the way that we need to, if we don't have downtime and breaks. And today it's even worse in so far as with our phones always on, even when we're technically off clock, we're still on clock, we're always reachable. And um, we might use that same device to check out, to go on Facebook or social media or quote unquote relax. But what we're finding from the cognitive studies is that is actually not very relaxing at all. It's incredibly stressful as is TV watching. Um, there's good science to back that up in terms of we're still in a state of, of alertness. Um, and so the tools that we need more than anything are learning how to care for ourselves Uh, Because if we're not taking care of ourselves, the next thing that starts to break is the relationships around us. People get frustrated with us. You're always on. You have no time for me. You know, and those relationships are nearest and dearest are the only ones that can step in and catch us when we are in cognitive traps um, and we're flying blind um, to say, hey, you know what? You're making a really bad decision. You know, come home. This is not a place for you to be, um, you know, making a major decision right now. You're too emotional. So if we go long enough in our self-care, we're going to start to lose important relationships or they're going to feel shut down and we're going to stop having access to triangulation so that we can make better decisions because we have outside people who are willing to give it to us straight that have nothing at stake um, in our career. And that's, that's when we really get lost because you know, we are totally dislocated. And when I was 20, when I was 29, I ended up going through a divorce at the same time um, because of my work addiction. I was just completely dedicated to the job and not to that marriage. And, you know, I hurt a lot of people in that process and I didn't want to own that for a long time. So I, I have two questions for you. Um, one is going to be about decision-making, but first I want to start with what Self-care is a buzzword right now, and we, we all say it, we all use it, but what does it actually mean? What 
phys- what tangible tips and resources can you give female leaders that will help them and also their teams? Absolutely. And I hate buzzwords, right? Because it's such an encoded thing. And and for women particularly, we can use these labels of self-care against ourselves. Um, we're really good at that. The this like, oh, I should be, I should be self-caring and I'm not. And so now I get to beat myself up about that too. So I'm, I want to be careful and acknowledge that that's a tendency um, towards um, towards shooting, you know, on ourselves. Um, so self-care for me is pretty straightforward. I have celiac. Um, I have Hashimoto's. I have two autoimmune disorders that require me to have a pretty restricted diet. Um, paying close attention to what we eat is critical um, for me, but it's, you know, but it's good for all of us having an, an, you know, having a diet that pays attention to sugar, just sugar, you know, because sugar is highly inflammatory. It's not good for any of us. And the data is really clear on that. So if you did nothing but really pay attention to how much sugar we're consuming, and if you're over 40, the inflammation really goes up dramatically. So cutting back on sugars, making sure we're getting good leafy greens. I mean, we all know what to do. I mean, I, I can't tell you, you know, anything new. Um, other than sleep, super important. Some of the tips and tricks I use, devices off and out of the room. Um, I don't always abide by this, um, but one of the I started doing is audiobooks at night. Um, I set a sleep timer on Amazon Echo, and I listen to something really soporific, and I fall asleep. I like <laughs> um, that. Somebody reading me a story. Um, and it and it needs to be off topic. It needs to be far enough away from my day job that I'm not. Um, that I'm not obsessing or trying to figure out how to put it to work. I'm not trying to cram new knowledge in at that point. I'm really trying to um, simply relax. And right now I'm listening to Lynn Twist's uh, Soul of Money, which is really helpful. Um, and I'm, I'm loving that particular book. But uh, I've also used Michael Singer's, um, oh, the, what is it? The Soul. Um, I'm having a moment. I can't remember because I've listened to it so many times. Do you know what I'm talking about, Michael Singer's book? I don't know that book, no. No. Um, Untethered Soul. Oh, yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I have had that one off and on. You know, I probably listened to it 50 times. Um, so, so those are some techniques that I use. The, the big piece is having truth tellers. And this is more unusual, where um, I engage in consented relationships where people are, I give them consent to give it to me straight. And this is unvarnished feedback and they cannot be related to me. They can't be in the business. Um, you know, if we were out in the world, we probably wouldn't necessarily be friends because our, our worldview is different, but there's mutual respect. Um, and so over the years, I've used uh, a device called a triad where it's two people who are committed to each other in terms of taking on a situation, asking a lot of questions and then providing feedback around what they see. Um, and it's always up to us to whether or not we wanna take on that feedback. But for me, it has been an incredibly helpful device to, um, to triangulate my decision-making. Because without outsiders giving us feedback, we can fall into cognitive traps such as confirmation bias, which really can bedevil us, where we think, and we think if we're smart enough, we can outthink our own confirmation bias, which is the tendency to only seek out information that confirms what we already believe. And we actually can't escape it within our own head. We need to get outside ourselves and talk to people who have, you know, have different backgrounds, different worldviews, 
to triangulate those things. And um, it's made a world of difference in terms of my own decision making. How did you find those people? Yeah, so I work, uh, so I've been in what you'd call personal development work for this point, almost 20 years, 17 years, 18 years, um, got into it in 2001 when everything fell apart. Um, I joined a program called the, at the Center for Authentic Leadership called Future Thinking. And that was where I was introduced to the concept of a triad. Um, so it was through my coaching community that I was able to find people. Um, but, you know, what I would recommend uh, for those of you that are not in a community um, to be able to um, find and seek out people that you respect, that you would like to know better. Um, and, you know, they're I'm not the only one who writes about the idea of consent in these relationships. Um, Annie Duke wrote a book called Thinking in Bets in which she talks about her feedback loop and the rules of consent um, that everyone agrees to, to give feedback because it's, it's gotta be a constructed relationship. We don't actually, particularly for women, um, we have social contracts in which we give it to each other nice and polite and um, couch a lot of information. And there's a lot of lies of omission that are there as social grease. Um, we don't want people to be out of relationship with us because we told them something too hard or they took it too personally. So the, the rules of consent have to be super clear. Um, otherwise people's feelings get hurt and things get wonky. Um, and that's also another reason to make sure that it's not anyone in your close family and or um, you know, your, your, your tight knit friend group, that's not their purpose. Uh, so it's a, it's a constructed friendship in a sense. So I want to hear a little bit more about how you make decisions because I found this resource on your website, which I personally have already used called, <laughs> I, I don't think you created it, but I think, or, or maybe you, I did. oh, okay. It's called the decision mm -hmm. matrix. Um, so I, I want to know how you came up with it and then like, tell us a little bit more about it and how you would recommend somebody use it on a regular basis. Yeah, so I, I created the questions. The idea of it is not novel. Okay, the idea okay. of it is uh, a decision support system. And it stems, for me, from the work of Daniel Kahneman, uh, who wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow and is really the, um, the, the founder of what we see as modern behavioral psychology or cognitive psychology, um, particularly around economics. That's what he that's what he's a Nobel laureate in. Um, he was the one uh, back in 1974 with his, with his partner who discovered um, that we are not rational decision makers. We're totally irrational, every last one of us. And so that launched, you know, so what does it mean to make a rational decision? How, how do you go about decision making? And um, so the way in which my decision support system came into being was I'd read a blog post by Daniel Kahneman. Just, I mean, so it's so funny. I was like, I think 42 at the time, something like here. I had been a CEO most of my adult life. And I read this post and I realized I had no idea how to make a decision. Like I'd never run a process. I'd, maybe I had a pro and con list. Maybe occasionally if it was a big enough decision, I might talk to somebody external but there was no rules around consent there. There wasn't, um, you know, except for my triad, but that wasn't, it wasn't in the framework of decision-making, if that makes any sense. It was more, it was much more loosey-goosey at that point. Um, and his, his blog post was on hindsight bias. How do you know you're a good decision-maker? And because of hindsight bias, we tend to think that the decision we made, if the outcome was good, that we made a good decision. And that's not true. 
We only made a good decision if we ran a good process. The outcome is completely up to luck. We might think we have a hand in it. And sometimes, you know, if we made a good decision, yeah, we can take some credit. But that decoupling between outcome and thought process was what really called me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm such an emotional gut decider. I really need to check this. And I found again and again, the place where I'd break down was asking other people for input. I, th- I, could, I could run scenarios in my head. I was sure I knew what they said. And then time and time again, as I started to use that structure, where it's basically, I think, 36 questions that I ask myself. And one of them, like three of the questions are like, did you talk to anyone? <laughs> what did they say? Um, are you skipping this step? Um, just because I so have a proclivity to think, oh, I don't want to tell them. They're going to think I'm stupid. They're not going to get it. Um, oh, it's going to take too much time. I need to make this decision right now. Like I have so many cognitive traps I fall into just because it's uncomfortable to seek outside counsel for me. Um, and so that was the spirit out of which I wrote that for myself so that I could become a better decider. I love that. I have a question for you because I think sometimes I hear you know, female entre- entrepreneurs talk about how they're scared to share ideas because they're scared that somebody might steal them. Um, how do you, how do you, I guess, balance the level of trust when you have those conversations? So I can only speak for what works for me because it's really going to be determined by whatever the background listening is the, in the person. Um, so some people are very scared of being betrayed. And if that's their background listening, my recommendation isn't going to land for them. Um, it's really something that they have to work on um, in terms of their own personal development around, is everybody out really to betray you? (laughs) I work in a world in which I believe, this is my story and it's completely made up, but I believe that 96% of the world is well-intentioned. They might not show it in great ways, but they're genuinely well-intentioned. There's 4% of the world that is genuinely out to get me. So most of the time, (laughs) I'm not gonna run into the 4%. Most of the time, it's it's good to share ideas, you need feedback, You want to have people to collaborate with and to rally around your vision. So my approach, because of my background listening, of most people are out for my best and higher good, has led me to share ideas widely because I believe, again, my story, that ideas are easy, execution is really hard. And execution requires a level of passion. And how passionate is somebody going to be about running with a stolen idea? Now, it does happen. There is corporate espionage. That is a place in which I have worked. Um, It does exist. It's not to say that reality isn't out there. It's just, it's around how do we orient ourselves? How do we see the world around us? And it's a constructed reality. And for the most part, it's a constructed reality based on our experiences as a kid, zero to 13. And so if we were told that adults were untrustworthy and we don't, you know, always watch out, you're going to get duped, you're going to be betrayed. Um, people are out to get you, that's going to be what you see in the world. And you will manifest that. Um, Or at least you'll think you manifest it because that's how your lens is oriented. Mine is just oriented in a different way. Uh, So I'm not necessarily answering your question because I feel like advice is so cheap. It's so individual. And if somebody is genuinely scared of their ideas being stolen, that's really a place that they're coming from around a fixed mindset that they have around how people are in the world. And no advice is gonna fix that. It's whether or not they're willing to be able to look and take on 
telling themselves a new story. Thank you for that. I, love um, that. I, I think that's something for a lot of people that happens when they're very young. You know, they think everyone's talking about them or making fun of them when they walk by, and that can that can land home for a lot of people listening. I think. Yeah, I mean, we grow up with those with those stories, and then we we seek evidence. And by the time we're in our twenties, thirties, fifties, like all of a sudden we've got a mountain of evidence that people are bad and out to get us. Um, but it's but we don't see again confirmation bias. We're missing all the times there was invisible help and very visible help in our lives. We just can't see it because that's not our orientation. Um, I think we have time for just one more question, if that's okay. I want to talk to you a little bit about being an angel investor and just you probably see a lot of women with a lot of new ideas. So I'd love to know what you kind of see as some future trends and patterns for women entrepreneurs. So the way in which I invest is I'm an entrepreneur investor. So I bet on the horse, not the race, right? So I'm about... um, the individual and who they are, because ideas change, markets change, um, dynamics change. Uh, so what I'm always looking for and when I invest is the individual. Is this person highly resilient? Are they really dedicated and passionate about this idea? Is it tied to something that they care deeply about in some way? Um, do they have unusual skills and strengths? Because the fact of the matter is, at a certain point, if you are a venture-backed entrepreneur, you have been through due diligence. You have, um, you have been identified as somebody that has the capacity to make this successful. And usually that means you've got success in, in the rearview mirror. Um, so there's a history of success. But it can also mean that, um, that you present yourself as somebody highly resilient. So that's for the younger, like 20-somethings. Um, I tend not to invest there as I invest in women-led startups. I tend to invest in women who are in their 40s. Um, and this isn't because of choice. It's really more statistic um, statistics. So most women don't step out into entrepreneurship until they're much older. They feel like for whatever reason, they might have to earn their stripes in corporate America. Um, it's just part of the dynamics. And so the average age for a woman to do their first startup is in their 40s. I think it's 44, 45. Harvard Business Review did a study on this. Um, and so just because of the numbers, that's, tend, that's where I tend to invest. But it's also a great place to invest because what I know from my own experience as an entrepreneur and a CEO in my 20s, you know, there's a whole learning curve that we have to go through. And we have to be willing to be a bad CEO before we can be a good CEO. And um, I like betting on people who have a lot of leadership experience under their belts, so they're not making newbie mistakes. Um, I also love it when they've got experience that is unusual. So, you know, so one of my investments right now that I'm super excited about um, is the real real. Uh, So Julie Rainwright, who is a friend and we were alumna together in Springboard in the class of 2008, founded the real real and I got to be with her very early on and see the warehouse like the first warehouse and um, and if you for those of you who don't know the real real is Hocatour on consignment um, and she just had an IPO it was a very successful IPO why did I invest in Julie um, I invested because she has a track record of success she has three companies previously that got over the hundred million dollar mark she has IPO companies previously and she also had some real hardship 
um, very public hardship. Uh, she was the CEO of Pets.com, which w- went down as the poster child of the dot-com crash. So, um, you know, Julie has been through the fire. She has walked the gauntlet. Um, she has had some very rarefied personal experiences. And, um, and I would assess that she's better for that experience. And so she is a really strong CEO. And she's done a phenomenal job, and I'm a very proud investor. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I think it does. Thank you. Um, So tell our listeners how they can find your website and more information about you and your book, and also, I guess, how you see them coming to you. What can you help people with? Sure. So my website is lostinstartuplandia.com. So I've got a mailing list that I'm starting. And at some point, I will start the newsletter. Right now, I've been really concentrating on collecting my stories. Um, I feel like there's not necessarily a need for another newsletter in the world. So when it comes out, it'll be really exciting. (laughs) It'll be what I feel is helpful. Maybe, maybe not. But hopefully, it won't be just more junk in somebody's inbox. Uh, and I do have the decision matrix. That tool is on the, uh, available on the site. And if they're looking to talk to me, feel free to contact me through the forum there. I'm also on all major social media and I can be found. My handle for Twitter is at Scheller Keller. So German for faster Keller. It was my track nickname in high school. Fun. Um, <laughs> and I'm not that fast. Technically, I'm not a great sprinter, but I sprinted for most of high school, which is unfortunate. Um, so that is, that's the best way to reach me. Yeah, you can find us on on all of the major social media channels too, right? You know, I think would be really cool for our listeners to do, Emily. No, tell me, I'm they, dying to they know. They should share, you know, it's not often we get to talk to people like Kelly, right? You know, you, I'm so excited that you were on today. Why not share the podcast screenshot with a question? And we could compile them and and get back to the community. I think that would be really great. I love it. And then you can answer them personally for folks. I love that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and taking time out of your day to speak with us. Um, I also just want to take a quick minute to thank today's podcast episode sponsor who helps people in the area of self-care. Bill Boylan is the owner and acupuncturist at the Acupuncture Clinic of Bedford, which is located off Route 101 in Bedford, New Hampshire. He's given over 35,000 treatments in the last 10 years and specializes in pre- and postnatal care, as well as fertility support. His slogan is simple, convenient, and effective, which is no joke. They have easy online scheduling and hours that fit in both morning and evening schedules. You can learn more about Bill at www.acupunctureclinicofbedford.com. Thank you again so much, Kelly, and have a great day. Have a great day. For more information on the She Built This podcast, you can check us out online at www.shebuiltthis.org. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.